0: Welcome to Friends Beer Coffee, an autobiographical podcast for the hell of it. Today, my guest is Jeff Bogle, a fellow world traveler and a very interesting blogger. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Jeff.
1: Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: How's it been going recently? What, what are some of the things that you're up to? <sighs>
1: Where to start? Um, it's been it's been a busy year. A lot. Uh, it's been a busy couple of years. But a lot has changed, um, in my life. I mean, obviously we're all dealing with the pandemic still, but um I separated, divorced, fell in love again, got remarried, moved from my suburban Philadelphia home, um, where my ex and the kids still live, to New York City, to Manhattan, um, this spring, fulfilling a childhood dream of mine to live uh to live in the village in Manhattan. So, um, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a crazy ride the the past the past year for sure.
0: So we met a number of years ago, thanks yeah. to uh, Dad Two Conference for Dad Bloggers and Creatives. Back then,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: were writing a blog called Out with the Kids. Um, is that something you're still doing, or from my understanding, you've kind of rebranded yeah. that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So Out with the Kids the site, I mean, it still exists and I occasionally will, will dump something on there. Usually just to like tease out something I've written somewhere else. So I, you know, back when we met, I was basically a dad blogger writing about being a dad and all that, that, that came with that. Um, definitely transitioned to like freelance writing, um, whether it's about parenting still or relationships, mostly travel these days for a variety of other websites. So out With The Kids itself became the the four letters O-W-T-K, which is like my social profiles or that. So it's definitely it'll always be a part of me at where it's where this journey began. Um And I'm very fond of it still. But as far as like writing blog posts, those days, those days are over. <laughs> yeah,
0: you've uh, you've started publishing a magazine. Is that correct?
1: I did so um so last summer in the in the the, the first peak I don't know how many peaks um, the coronavirus has had, but during the first initial one when nobody knew really what was going on, and um, my creativity was completely zapped i had just I, I was sad and angry and confused and and I couldn't do anything and as a as a creative person that's a weird spot to be in and, and an uncomfortable one so i I harkened back to when I was um t- Twenty one. Many decades ago, I um, I started a record label, so I couldn't play music, although music changed my life when I was a teenager. So I wanted to be involved. So I started a record label and met bands and put out their vinyl and put out their records under my umbrella. So I was I was driving around side hustling, like delivering toys for an independent toy company who couldn't be open in person. So they were doing like free local delivery. And I was not making any money as a travel writer because nobody could travel anywhere. So <laughs> nobody was paying me to write about travel. So I was delivering toys and I, I, was, I was driving and I was like, I'm going to start a literary magazine. And it's very on brand for me because I'm a contrarian. So if somebody tells me that like print is dead and that nobody reads, I'm like, I'm going to do something like economically foolish and try to start a physical <laughs> magazine with, like, high art writing. No memes, no ads, not just, like, real, like, literature. Um, and I called Doug French, uh, found, co-founder of the Dad 2 a Summit where we met, and I'm like, Doug, tell me I'm not stupid for this idea. <laughs> and he couldn't figure out a reason that I was stupid. <laughs> and so I did it. Yeah, I did it. So um, I put out a call to to writers I know, like Whit Honey and Andrew Knott and Carter Gaddis and some of the, like the guys who I really respected from a writer, a writerly standpoint um, that I knew previously had published, like kind of works of fiction or poetry um, or creative nonfiction. And I'm like, hey, can I borrow some of these works that you published years ago to start this thing? Um, and they all said yes, and I did it. And, um, the sixth issue it's quarterly and the sixth issue, uh, comes out in about a month and it's grown to, um, to have a spine. It used to be, so it's a five size. So I'm an Anglophile. So I, I, I didn't want to do like eight and a half by five and a half. I wanted a weird size, a weird European British size. So, um, you yeah, know, I'll show you one. Nice. I mean, this is an audio medium, so this is going to do nobody any good, but I'm going to show but, you.
0: <laughs> I, well, I can, I'll definitely link to it. And we can share some of the covers. That's a fantastic cover.
1: Thank you. So this is, um, this is a, the, a so it's photos mostly of mine. It's a stark, it's like a thick, uncoated paper, um, stark black and white photography and, uh, and writing. There's one act, this, that, what I just opened to. Well, that's a poem. There's monologues, one act plays, um, but I get submission. So this is a Nigerian artist, a, an etching that uh, that he sent me to include. And now I pay uh, contributors. So the first four issues, the first year was a staple bound product. Um, and then I grew with about 36 pages. And then issue five came out and I ha- it has a spine. It's like a paperback book now. It's 60, 64 pages, I believe, if that's divisible by four. Yes, that's 64 pages. Um, and then this is that's yeah, that's the newest one. That's a photograph of mine from uh, awesome. the newest national park in West Virginia. Oh, okay. Uh, and so uh, yeah, that's been an incredibly cool creative endeavor. So I only open my windows of submissions now for about four days. I originally I was going like I'm just gonna you're always be able to submit just all all year round, and that got to be outrageously hard to manage. Sure. I open for like four days and I get hundreds of submissions from artists all over the world um, who want to be a part of this. Um, one, because it's print, two, because I pay. And for a small press thing, both of those things are really rare. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been amazing. It, the response to it, like over 100 subscriptions sold in the first year um, that people nice. like want to get this in their mailbox every three months
0: so that's fantastic tell <laughs> yeah. me uh, tell me a little bit about how you fell in love with writing because you seem to be a fairly prolific writer even huh. if it is in multiple mediums
1: yeah um that's a that's a good question i i don't know if i'm in love with writing i'm in love with the idea of being a writer <laughs> the writing sometimes <laughs> is arduous but no I, i'm joking i do love it i love i love the written word. Um, It happened later in life. I was not a reader. Uh, In fact, I still struggle to, like, sit down. I have, like, attention span issues, which is probably what draws me to the short story. One, I love the art of it and the craft of, like, making you feel something for characters and get in and out of a story with, like, a short – in, like, just a couple pages or one page. Like, flash fiction could be a paragraph and make you feel something, which is – one, incredible, and also, like, fits me to a T. I'm like, I can sit down for, like, five minutes and read something and finish it and feel, like, really good about myself. Nice. Um, but, yeah, I, I just probably after becoming a blogger and writing terribly early on about being a parent, just not knowing how to formulate sentences or – and some people would say, I still don't know how to do that. But I, <laughs> I, I, try. I mean, I still don't understand how to use, like – colons correctly or semicolons <laughs> i just throw them in because they look cool on the page but um, yeah just just later in life just coming to love how people could use and my the writing i love and, and the writing i do um like regular language just like everyday language nothing fancy it's like you don't have thesaurus.com open in another tab just trying to spruce everything up just normal everyday language to tell beautiful stories and make you feel something. Um, and I, w- what I like to try to do with my writing and what I like to read is like full sensory writing. Like I want to smell what those flowers smelled like. I want to, I want to taste the salt in the air. If you're by the beach, I want words to convey all of that. And just as I got older I, and as my life got more hectic, I took solace in the written word, like to be able to kind of like, I have a hard time slowing down just my mind and my actions. So words as a writer and as a reader really, I don't slow down completely, but at least kind of like turns the dial down a little bit and makes me sort of unplug from having earbuds in or watching a soccer match to just sort of like take myself somewhere outside my own head. Um, and there's very few things in the world that are capable of doing that to me anymore. Um Basically, reading uh short fiction or, or fiction and watching soccer are the only things where I can sort of zen out and stop creating for myself. I can kind of like pause that part of my brain, which is super helpful.
0: Would you say that's part of why you love soccer and not just watching on TV, but I've seen you do travel in order to yeah. attend
1: number of games yeah in fact watching it on tv has become harder because like my phone's next to me and i'm just like getting a little distracted or that the animals need something or my wife's wanting to to me to do something or make her another quiche or whatever um, <laughs> so watching it in person is the is truly the only thing in the world that i've found where for for 90 minutes plus stoppage time I completely shut down and I'm just watching the defensive line, the the back line and the runs that guys are making and like just the, the the ballet that's happening on the pitch. And I don't think about how, because everything else in life, whether I'm out with, out with the kids or whatever I'm doing, I'm like, Oh, how would I describe this? Like what I'm running sentences through my head about everything. But I don't do that for soccer. And a lot of people have said, like, oh, man, you should try to, like, write about it so you could get paid and, like, travel the world watching soccer. And I resist because I'm like, it would destroy the only thing I have in the world where I'm not creating. Um So it's a very – not only do I love the sport anyway, but it the fact that it has that power over me is – is intoxicating and I don't want to give that. I can't give that up for a few bucks or to get in free. Like it's just not worth it. Sure.
0: Did did you like watching football soccer when you were a
1: kid? No, I played. I played when I was little. Although I was a goalie, I chose to be a goalie because I was a I was a chubby little boy um and I didn't want to run as much. So I was like, "Oh, goalkeepers don't run very often." So, <laughs> that was my that, that was very um that was very that, that story is very indicative. that pretty much tells you the whole story of young Jeff um likes doing stuff, but it, it making the the minimum amount of effort possible <laughs> to do it uh which is quite the opposite of how I am today. I go out of my way to make things as difficult as as I can for myself um now so yeah i didn't I didn't really watch it. It wasn't until the two thousand ten World cup um I had hurt my back uh and was sort of like paralyzed semi-paralyzed and that was the first time espn had rights to the world cup and it was in south africa so it was on at like 6 a.m and the app that was like they had just launched their app i don't even know what it was called back then like espn plus or no everything's plus now (laughs) whatever it was called espn three or six or whatever and um i was just laying in bed on the ipad watching all these matches and just fell in love with it and then Philadelphia got an MLS franchise I think that same year, and my parents, for some reason, who weren't soccer fans, bought season tickets to it because they wanted to, like – be a part of the inaugural of something.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And so, you know, after like the first couple matches, they're like, Hey, do you want our tickets? Cause they, it was a It was an expansion team. So there were not a lot of goals. (laughs) They weren't very good. They weren't very good. And so (laughs) I just started, I just started going and in person and like really fell in love with it. Having the world cup parlayed into live football in my own city. Um, and that's really where it began. So it, I was an NFL fan and a Detroit Red Wings hockey fan and baseball. I ran through all the sports um as a younger person. And now I've sort of chopped everything out because soccer is so all consuming. It really never stops. And from England to France to America and women's football, which I supported, there's just no limit to it. And it's just all consuming. <laughs> there's no room for any other sport in my head. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And you've been to games, obviously, in the U.S., but you've also been to some international games. Can you tell oh, me about any of those?
1: A lot. It is, it is my, I call it my midlife crisis. Yeah. So combining tra- my love of travel and my love of like experiencing other cultures. Um, I have I'm a, I have this geeky, um, list on my phone that keeps track of every football ground, um, I've, I've seen a match in. And nice. There's like, I don't know how many MLS clubs there are in America now, but. There's a couple more every year. I don't even know what they're up to, like 30 or something. I think I've seen like 20 of them in person. Oh, wow. And in England, I've seen 30 to 40 different matches across different stadiums. I've seen matches in Norway and France and Spain and Iceland. Um, next week, as we record this, I'm going to be in Dubai and I'm going to a match there. Oh, wow. I look, wow. it, the first thing I do when I'm going anywhere is look to see if there's football on anywhere. It's nice. the first thing: I, the football, and then concerts, and then theater. Uh, that's the order that I look for things when I'm traveling. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I I traveled two summers ago to France for the Women's World Cup. Um, I zigzagged across France and saw seven matches: three U.S. Team USA, but um, but like never, Germany, Nigeria in the south of France. Like I just went all over the place. Um supporting supporting the ladies
0: that that sounds awesome yeah <laughs> uh, you through your travels one of the things i've seen you do a lot is cruises and i know i think i think most of what you've done with that is pre-pandemic yeah did you go on cruises when you were a kid or is that something also kind of later in life with travel that that took off yeah, for you
1: I, I was anti-cruise although I think I got that from my parents. Like my parents were also anti-cat and then I've become like a complete obsessed cat dad. So um, I, they were, they were anti-cruising and I grew up and loved to, to like immerse myself in a city or a culture and try to like live the life, go to the markets, rent an apartment when, you know, when renting apartments became something you could easily do, I, I would do right. that. And Cruising seemed antithetical to all of that. You know, you're just in a port which is just like tourist shops, and then you leave, and you're not having like any like impact. It's not having an impact on you, and you're not having a positive impact on that destination. It didn't seem like it fit with me. And then I was invited on one as a travel writer, and I, I mean, somebody's going to send me somewhere for free. I'm going to go, um, and, <laughs> and I took my kids. This was like seven years ago, and so they were, let's say, ten and seven. And they loved it, like 24-hour soft serve, pizza whenever you want it, kids' clubs where they could play games and meet other people. And then when we got to ports, I realized, like, you don't have to just stay there and, like, be herded off with everybody else. We would, like, look for rental car locations and, like, get in a car and just, like, go far from wherever anybody else was going. And just – so we made our own adventure and used cruising as, like, a really fun method of transportation Nice. And then once we got to a place, we did whatever we wanted. So obviously we weren't like, and we would go to local grocery stores, which is my favorite thing to do when I travel. Going to a grocery store, you can learn so much about a place, um, by like just the people in there, the way it's formatted, the pro, the logos. I'm a design nerd too. So okay. like. Like the the, pa- the familiar packaging, familiar products in America and like how they're sold there and like what they choose to amplify the messaging. It's fascinating to me. And the candy aisle, if you've ever, the candy aisle in European grocery stores is just a wonderland. <laughs> especially, yes. Especially in England with all like the chocolate covered digestive biscuits. Oh, my God. Right. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a danger for me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we would do that in like in miniature and every day we'd get off the ship. And so we just sort of took to it like a duck to water pardon definitely intended. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I've done it a lot. Like I've cruised a lot and I've actually cruised post, well not post, we're not, we're not done with the pandemic, but I've cruised now during the pandemic for work, um, and made the case that I don't think there's any Cruising would get a knock that it's like an incubator for germs and bacteria and people would get sick. I honestly don't know if there's any place safer on Earth right now than a cruise ship, which is a weird turn of fate, a twist of fate, because you got to be vaccinated to get on it. You have to have a test right before you get on it and you're wearing masks on it. Like those three conditions don't exist anywhere else in the world right now. Right. Um, So it's kind of a weird, a weird turn. Um, and we've had a lot of fun. Like I've been on, I've been on an inordinate amount of cruises this year. <laughs> um, like carnival just launched a new ship and I was on it cause I was writing about it. Um, I was on a test cruise for Royal Caribbean, which was just media. of oh. like lucky volunteers. And that was really fun. It was like a massive cruise ship at full staff, but with like 800 people. So it was like almost, it was like an a butlered experience. Cause there was almost one to one, or there was, Two employees for every one passenger, which was crazy for like a wow. for a non-luxury cruise line. Sure. Uh, so that was really wild. And then Virgin, uh, Richard Branson's cruise line just launched. And I was on the inaugural cruise of that because I was writing about it for Fodor's. Um, and then we just got back from Croatia. We were on a private chartered yacht experience, <laughs> which was one of the most outrageously luxurious things I've ever done in my life. Um, in the Adriatic Sea on this like yacht with thirty other journalists, and that's it—like private chef and jumping off the back of the yacht in, in freezing cold water. But it sure. was like crystal clear water, and like what a what a ridiculous. Like it all started because I was writing about my two-year-old and writing about kids' music, and now I'm in Croatia on a yacht. Like what a. What a weird, weird world I live in. Right?
0: No kidding. <laughs> Are, do you have to like renew your passport early or do you find that you have to get those like, uh, passport, the extra pages put in your passport uh, because you've traveled
1: a lot? I'm, I'm, my passport expires in a little over a year and I, I don't have it. The pandemic obviously caused a lot of damage and this is definitely sure. the least damaging thing. But I don't have; I still have pages left to fill. Um but yeah I will you have to do it what like six months before it expires? Something like that, yeah. You wonder, like, what's the point of an expiration date if it's six if the real date is six months before <laughs> the expiration date. Um so yeah, like mid summer next year. I'll be happy to get a new photo because I was that was ten years ago or nine years ago and I have lost a lot of weight since then. So I'm definitely not going to be upset about the new passport photo. But, yeah, starting over with uh, with all the stamps and all the little security stickers that's on the back of my, my – yeah. my back of my passport is completely covered with the little <laughs> security stickers. Uh, but it is, it is a thrill. So when we went – I got two stickers in Croatia because I was driven to Dubrovnik after the yacht, and we went through Bosnia back and forth. And, oh, like, wow. they, they stamped it, like, a little 10-minute – stint through bosnia and so on either side we got croatian stamps which was funny um but yeah it it is a thrill i like my passport and i definitely will hold on to it but you know 10 years ago i didn't travel that much so like my old passports were just like a normal person's like a normal (laughs) like you travel once a year or something and maybe you leave the country maybe you don't um but yeah this this passport and this this saw the growth of me as a travel writer and a and a a lover of Europe and international travel, so um, it's been it's been quite a ride.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your
1: weight loss journey? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So about five years ago, it'll, I think it'll be five years ago on Thanksgiving, the Monday after Thanksgiving in uh, 2016. I was like 310 pounds. I'm six five, so like, and I don't drink beer, so I don't have like a gut per se. But it was big. I was like a big person. Um thank God I was six If I was like five five, three ten, that would I would have been like complete perfectly round, I think. Right. <laughs> I would have been the soccer ball at that point. Um so I just said I'm like, I had enough. Like I just can't I can't live like that anymore. So what I did was um, just cold turkey, I stopped eating bagels and cereal primarily. And that was like, that might not seem like a big deal, but like I ate those two things every day. <laughs> and sometimes as a stay at home dad, I would eat them for like, a, like a big bowl of cereal um, and a bagel for breakfast and for lunch. Hmm. Um, and so it was just like a carb fest and a sugar fest. And then within th- the first three days were horrendous. I was so hungry and miserable. But then after that, I had like what I guess was like what a normal person's appetite was, which I don't ever remember having. I'm like, I don't need to eat all the time. Like I'm not hungry, which is really weird. And the pounds just started dripping off of me. Um, so I would still have like a lick of ice cream. I I would be satisfied just by like having a fork of dessert instead of like a whole thing. And I would take like Winnie the Pooh. I still joke today. There's this line in Winnie the Pooh. Um, I'm a huge Winnie the Pooh and Piglet fan. Um, where he goes, he gets caught trying to steal honey. And he goes, I wasn't going to eat it. I was just going to taste it. <laughs> uh, and that's what I think about now. Like I can just have, my wife can get an ice cream cone. And as long as I talk her into getting a flavor I would like, and not like fruit or something, uh, <laughs> like something jocody, i like, I can just have a couple licks and be satisfied still to this day. And so I lost about 70 pounds in about four months. Wow. Um, running, exercising. I was already running, but I was like running to eat essentially. It wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't losing any weight. I was just like hurting myself and staying flat at 310. And I went down to 240 and I'm up, I'm like like 247 right now. So I've like basically have plateaued. I've kept it off for five years. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, part of that too was like what also helped. So I, I don't, I gave up soda a long time ago. And like fast food when my kids were born. So 17 years ago, I'm like, I'm not eating fast food anymore. Like I'm going to start eating vegetables for the first time in my life because I want to set a good example and gave up fast food, gave up, um, a lot of garbage and soda, but was still big because it was, I was still just eating too much of everything. Um, and so. Like I, I know that you talk about beer and stuff and like I'm a root beer fan, which I know, you know, you sent me a couple of days ago, this Abita root beer from Louisiana, um, that Shake Shack serves. Um, which I, when I flew out to JFK, I don't, I haven't been to a Shake Shack in a long time as you can imagine. But when I was flying out of JFK, there's one right across from this gate. And I want, we, my wife and I was like, let's get some fries, uh, before the flight. And, they they had a root beer that I'd never heard because I, I collect bottle caps from from like craft root beers nice. and I'm like I don't think I've ever had that one and um and it was really good and so um I was excited when you sent it to me uh, it's not the best one I mean. I have a ranking system of, of the of the best couple root beer. Sure, I mean, everyone should, right? They <laughs> <laughs> yeah. should. I mean, the local – Hank's outside of Philadelphia. And it might, it might be personal because it is local to me. Um, but the Midwest has some incredible – and Milwaukee, Milwaukee is like um, – Sprecher's root beer in Milwaukee is just outrageously good. Um, and Dang, Dang, that's good root beer. Butterscotch root mm-hmm. beer is like the best-flavored one. Um, but, yeah, so I like – I don't drink a whole lot of stuff. I'll have the occasional crafter root beer. Um, I drink ginger ale on airplanes because my mouth gets weird on airplanes. Otherwise, I drink water, and that's it. So, like, the lack of, like, beverages really helps with weight loss <laughs> and keeping it off, like, not consuming all that sugar and stuff. Um, it also saves a lot of money. And I, I've never written about this, and you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to tell you. Some people wonder, I think, I have said, like, how do I afford – because like, not all the travel I do is like paid for. Um, like I go places and maybe like they'll put me up, but I'm paying to get my whole family there. Sure. And mostly it's because like I don't drink alcohol <laughs> and I don't drink coffee. So like if you add up like what a normal person spends or normal family spends on like Starbucks drive-through and wine and beer, that's basically how I travel. <laughs> I don't spend right. any of that. And for my ex-wife. Didn't either. She drank tea, but like just a box of tea is like three bucks for like a hundred bags or whatever. Right. So like she didn't drink alcohol. So like as a family, there was like no beverage costs whatsoever. So you can imagine if you think about like what that is on a weekly, monthly and yearly basis, sure. that's basically like our vacation budget. I keep meaning to write that as like, a, how do I do it? Like the life of a traveler, like how, how the hell am I always going everywhere? Well, well, I don't have a lot of expenses on that. That most adults, <laughs> that most adults have.
0: No, that's true. Well, I mean, we have an espresso machine. Finally, I think the last year and a half we, is how long we've had it. We got it through some Best Buy blogging stuff, and I had leftover oh, okay. gift cards. We like pooled it together. We're like we spend a lot of money at Starbucks or <laughs> these kinds of things, so we can have you know our fancy coffees or just straight black coffee the way we want it, and it's you know, a few cents a cup now instead of five, Four, six bucks. Five like, bucks. Used yeah, to be, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so, yeah, you're you're right on for sure.
1: That's great. No, it makes sense. I, mean, I don't think a lot of people realize I'm a big like. So I got into a massive credit card debt when I was really young. And so ever since then, when I like, I don't carry any debt now, like I'm sort of insane about it and have been my entire adult life. But I used to work in finance. I've gotten really good at budgeting. And when I met my my neck, my now wife. She was not good at budgeting and I've taught her like, if you think about things a certain way and you think about all those little costs, like 12 bucks for lunch, five bucks for a coffee, and you do that every day and you prorate that over 20 working days, forget weekends or or days off. Like how much money that really is. It's insane. Like pack your lunch, like make your cup of tea or coffee at home. Like it, it really makes a massive difference. So anyway, I love cooking and I love I would love making packing my kids lunches. And, you know, they they rarely ever had to buy lunch. I was always making them fresh stuff and um, would make my my ex like a cup of tea in the morning and a travel mug. And so she wouldn't have to stop and get tea somewhere. And um, it was a. It allowed us to do a, a heck of a lot of stuff as a family. Nice. And, and other than, and you know, so I'm a vinyl nerd. You, you once sent me records yourself from Five Iron Frenzy. Mm-hmm. Um, so other than buying records uh, and buying football scarves, because I buy a football scarf from every match I see, the home team scarf. Um, I don't really spend a whole lot of I'm like books to so use books, but I don't spend a whole lot. Like I like doing stuff and not accumulating more stuff. More important now, we live in a New York apartment, so like space is. Sure. At a, as, a, as a premium, um, but I've always been like that. I, I just I'd rather spend my money having me- making memories and having experiences than collecting stuff or or buying beverages that I could or meals that I could kind of easily make on my own.
0: Do you feel like that whole kind of minimalist philosophy went into your
1: parenting I think so. I tried to really instill that in my kids. There was a time where I had like a one in, one out policy. I'm like, if you want a stuffed animal, you're finding one to give away. Like if you want anything new, like we, because during that time, and you went through this, you just talked about a Best Buy program, you mm-hmm. went through this too. Like you get a lot of free stuff as a dad blogger. <laughs> and so like whether it's video games or DVDs or books or whatever, there was a lot of stuff showing up. So when they, when it would come, we're like, Hey, it's a philanthropic thing, but it's also like a practical thing. Like, let's not be greedy. Let's not just, like, just be hoarders either. Um, so I tried to, like, instill that. I don't know if it worked. I mean, they love thrifting now. They love used books and used records. So they, they have a, an awareness of, like, they, they're 17 and 14 now. So they're much more, I think they have a worldview of, like, the dangers of fast fashion like the economic and political impact and, and environmental impact of like the choices that they ma- they make from a consumer standpoint. And so, you know, I wasn't like militant about it. I'm not, I'm not completely nuts about that stuff, but I tried to make sure they were aware that every decision matters. You don't have to overanalyze everything, but like your choices mm-hmm. matter. Um, to you personally on your budget and to people around the world who maybe aren't making a fair living or um, or whatever. So like they now that I live in New York, they love coming up here, going yes. thrift, going thrifting. My youngest, I just took her. She was up here like 10 days ago and we went um, thrifting. She got five like she loves chunky sweaters and she was so excited for fall thrifting in New York. And we got five sweaters for 50 bucks, 10 bucks each. Perfect. And she's. She's like over the moon. And so like that's, that's like one sweater brand new in some store. So they love like used shoes that are like, you know, in good shape. So I feel like it definitely had a positive impact on them. They don't, they don't blow through their money on stuff like that when they can, they, they know there's other ways to do stuff, (laughs) to get, to accumulate stuff and to live life.
0: I've always wondered, how did you get involved with Dead 2 as the Dead 2 summit, attending the conferences, that sort of thing? And then what was the process from kind of where you were to starting a podcast with Doug French?
1: Yeah. So my first summit was, I think the second one, it was in Houston. So that would be nine. I don't know what nine years ago, I guess I was scared out of my mind to meet him and to meet all these guys like Zach Rosenberg and wit and Carter and Oren Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, And other guys who like seemed ginormous. Like they were just like great writers and had an audience and but I went. I like forced myself to go and stayed off site. I'm like, I gotta put a little arm's length. I'm like, I don't wanna be I'm anti I'm somewhat antisocial and total introvert. Um or I guess you would say an extroverted introvert. Once once you know me, I'm fine. Or once I know you, but otherwise I would rather just have my earbuds in and like sit in the corner somewhere. <laughs> um, so I bear, I guess I talked to Doug at that conference and then went the next year and slowly just became a part of it. I just by writing more and building an audience and becoming one of like the dad bloggers who was doing it professionally because I could, my writing got a little bit better. I started doing photography, photography. So like I added that element, like way before video and way before even like blogger photography was like, there weren't like influencers back then. Right. (laughs) So I sort of added that element and started getting noticed for it. And Doug asked me to speak at one of them, probably like the third one I was at. Um, And then it just sort of grew from there. We became kind of buddies. Um, he lived, he lives out near Detroit. And, and at the time I was still a massive Red Wings fan. So like I would see him when I would go out and see the Red Wings. And, um, the podcast came about, he and I have a good rapport, like when we're just hanging out. I mean, Doug is a good rapport with anybody. So I, that's definitely like, (laughs) he's doing 90% of the heavy lifting there. (laughs) We had, we started another podcast called into the scrum. And it was just us kind of chatting. And I think we had a few guests on from time to time, but then he eventually like convinced his, the co-founder John Pacini to like kind of rebrand it as the dad 2.0. Like their podcasting was just really becoming a massive force. And like the, the the summit should have a podcast and we're already doing one. Um, and it just kind of grew out of that. And, and he wanted me to stay on as kind of the, the de facto host of it. Um, I mean, he does all the booking with one exception. I booked the head coach of, of the Philadelphia Union. Uh, the, nice. not my hometown anymore because I live in New York, but my, my favorite football, American football team. Um, I know the PR rep and was able to get the head coach who was the coach of the year in the MLS last year. And awesome. that was, I don't get star and I wasn't star Trek, but that was awesome talking to him. Um, he also said it's like one of the best interviews. He's like, this was way better than ESPN and Fox Sports. Uh, this nice. was great. And then he gave me his number and like we've texted a few times and yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, he does all the heavy lifting and I just kind of show up once a week and kind of crack a few jokes and uh, ask a few good questions. But um, yeah, that's, that's, it just kind of grew organically of us, just me being a scaredy cat and him kind of beating out my imposter syndrome on, on old episodes. Um, it was a lot about me and my process. He like those early ones, Probably before it was the dad, too, because now we have a guest on almost every week. But when it was just us, it was a lot about like my insecurities as a writer, me not feeling like I'm worthy of getting any gigs or working through sponsored opportunities that I used to do and trying to pitch freelance opportunities and and working through trying to like be aspirational and inspirational to other dad bloggers to be like, listen, you can do this you can you can add there's no harm in asking there's no harm in pitching meanwhile i was rarely ever doing it because i was scared shit um, i don't know if i can curse but i was scared yes. shitless <laughs> to um to actually do it and get a rejection um thankfully i'm completely over that um, like i've 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 written um like query letters for children's picture books and I'm, i've been rejected a ton um i actually have a book deal now for like other books. My first one came out in September. My next one comes out in December and then one in February and then one next summer. I have a five, four books with this one publisher that are in nice. the pipeline. Um, so once you clear that hurdle, it gets a lot easier. But those early podcasts were almost like therapy sessions for me to, uh to grow as a creative person. And I owe Doug, I mean, I owe that too a lot for like, Helping me have this life, meeting guys like Jim Higley and just trem- you and, and Creed and just tremendous writers and creators um, who have a passion. And I fed off that for years and it helped kind of steer me both as a father and like getting the great thing about that, too, is like it helps you get better as a dad, but it also helps you find your way if you want to make being a dad some sort of a job. However, that whether you're on YouTube now or Instagram or whatever you do. Um, and so I don't think I, mean, I could be, know for sure I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for showing up and kind of getting out of my my head about uh, my fear of kind of being accepted by by guys and and by brands and, and all that. So cheers to dad too.
0: <laughs> yeah, same. Absolutely. I, I want to thank you for those early episodes, too, and your vulnerability in them, because I found that personally very uh, inspirational as far okay. as for me to be able to continue to, you know, send out the pitches. If it's no great, but you wouldn't have known the answer if you wouldn't have tried, you know. Right. Exactly. Um,
1: and and getting a no or worse, getting no response getting no response is way worse. Um, for me, because it's like they didn't even want it. I it was so bad it didn't even deserve a no. <laughs> <laughs> but then you, you realize that like it's not personal. I mean, especially like with running Stanch in my magazine, like I say no a lot. I mean, I run a print thing and get hundreds of submissions every quarter. I accept twelve, and so it's just not a fit or it's it whatever. It's like it's not a personal thing. It's not a personal attack. Sure. Uh, I mean some stuff's terrible. I mean not not like for real, real talk. <laughs> some stuff is just bad. But most things it's just like it's not for me. I don't publish stuff like that or it doesn't resonate with me. And so on the other end of the the email that I'm pitching, somebody could just be like inundated or their kid was sick and their in- inbox got filled up and it happens. Like they're living lives and trying to get through the day just like I am. Mm-hmm. And um they don't hate me. <laughs> I mean, they may. Right. They may now. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I keep following up, uh, no, I'm still not good at that. I'm still not good at the follow up. I'll do. I'll maybe do one, but then I'm like, okay, I'll take the hint. Never mind. Yeah. Um, I'll just. I'll <laughs> just slink away into my cave and never, never talk to you again. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you that you found that 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 basically dug. Um, berating me about my my, <laughs> all my horrible process <laughs> week after week was helpful. It was helpful. Uh, it was tough love. The tough love, I think, is what yeah. it
0: is. <laughs> I didn't realize. um So when you were at Dad Two in New Orleans the first time,
1: yeah,
0: I, I didn't realize that would have only been your second time
1: there. Yeah. yeah, and I think was that when I taught. Was that when I was on that panel? Was that in New Orleans with um Chris Reed and Jason Green and Art Eddie? It's sort of like, I think that was New Orleans because that that's sort of like not infamous, but people met. You would be surprised. And I'm not tooting my own horn because there was it was a great panel of all of us. Art is amazing. Um It was called it was basically called Just Ask. And it was a whole panel. It was packed. That room was packed and it was so cool. And people still talk yeah. about it to this day. Yep it was all about like basically what we just talked about. Like the worst they can say is no. Like if you want, if you're traveling and you have some sort of following or you have a story idea and you want to pitch a car brand or hotel or whatever, like just ask, just ask if like you, if there's a room available for media and take yourself seriously and put together a couple sentences in an email and ask. Um, I mean, art, to this, Art has interviewed some of the biggest people on this planet, athletes and celebrities, and that all comes about because he just asks. Mm-hmm. And Chris Reed has done amazing work up in Canada. And Jason Green is, is a powerhouse of a travel writer. And we were all, I guess, in our infancy back then, but we knew enough. Again, peek behind the curtain, I wasn't really doing it. I wasn't really asking back then, but I was talking a big game like I understood the concept of it. I just haven't hadn't like completely cleared that hurdle yet. Um so uh yeah, that that was that was so yeah, so I was at the first one and then I guess that year in between just kind of became friendly enough with Doug that cuz I think I pitched that. I want to say that I pitched that panel or so, or if, or what became that panel, like an idea of process of how I go about getting some of the opportunities that I've gotten. Um, And that's just part of the puzzle. So like, and I'm sure if you've listened to me on into the scrum slash dad Mm 2.0, I've said a lot, like I attribute everything that I've achieved to, to like three core things, like being a decent person, which is, is you can commodify like that is a, a sellable asset in this in now more than ever <laughs> being a decent person is a good sellable trait <laughs> um working hard and having gratitude like i've been told by brands that uh, I've been invited on things that I should not have been on. If you just look at a pure like ROI standpoint, like what I can deliver for them. I'm like, I should not be here <laughs> with mm-hmm. the other like people are from like Rolling Stone or whatever. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Sure. <laughs> I, I've asked them, And they're like, we like working with you. You're good. You deliver, you, you deliver you. When you write, you have like a voice. It's not just like, I don't know. I don't, don't want to knock anybody else's writing. So I don't want to give an example of, something else but like sure i have a perspective and i have a style of doing something and i i'm grateful i thank them i thank them and i over and over again probably to the point of not like they're like okay stop stop <laughs> we get it you're grateful you're the grateful guy um but like it's genuine and i care more about making relationships with people than contacts in business now those two things can be accomplished together. But my first approach is like, I care about your kid going off to college next month. And hopefully I'll remember, I don't take notes, but hopefully in three months, I'll remember to send you an email and say, Hey, how did, how are they doing? How did it go? How are you holding up? Because Mm -hmm. I care. It's not about getting the next gig. That'll happen organically, but that's not the game I'm playing. And it's super genuine. I don't know if you were at the dad too and I've referenced this a lot in offline and online but Peter Shankman who I can't yep. 100% remember who he is but oh, were you at when he talked yes that was a fantastic talk he said the it, I can't remember any of it except we've become so conditioned to be treated like shit that if you can be 1% better in the service industry if you can be 1% better a person you're going to you're going to be a rock star in this world. Imagine if you're like 50% better or a 99% better than like the baseline of what people expect yeah. because like calling your cable company or dealing with the energy, you're just the airlines. It's just terrible. And so I was already a decent person trying to treat people with respect. And I'm like living proof that that's a hundred percent true. If you're half decent at what you do and you care about it and you treat people right, and you have gratitude for the opportunities that you get and you recognize that you're not entitled that you're fortunate i I mean I'm living proof that you can just keep going and make a living at, at, at this weird crap <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: one of the things you specifically but also others at dad too have really encouraged me with is uh overcoming my imposter syndrome because yeah. i can I can do things you know and and yeah. That it's not a bad thing to be able to say I can do X, Y, or Z and not feel worried about someone's, you know, review of it because whatever, people are going to like you or they're not. And it doesn't necessarily mean what you can do or who you are. Your worth is worth any less depending on how they react.
1: You know? No, 100%. And, I mean, imposter syndrome is extremely real um, and it's debil- it can be completely debilitating, but – it's a lie. It's a lie your brain is telling yourself. Um, you are worthy. You if I mean I don't mean to be funny. I mean some people are terrible at what they do. And and maybe, <laughs> and maybe they have a right to feel like an imposter. I don't know. But most people, if you care and you try and you're putting you're giving it your all or you know, something close to your all on a regular basis, your work is worthy of finding an audience. And it's worthy of being paid consumed and compensated, um, and rewarded, um, on on all levels, like whatever that level that you want, or, you know, it doesn't mean you deserve like $10,000 for, for one Instagram post. Um, I mean, nobody deserves that, but (laughs) a lot of people get it. Uh, but it it it's worthy. And, um, there's no secret. I mean, maybe there is a secret. I think John um,'s wife, actually, he posted something recently on Twitter about, like, his wife does, like, a course on, like, overcoming imposter syndrome. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's really fascinating. But um, I, I declared myself over it um, publicly, like, six months ago or so. And now, if you chart the trajectory of my weird career, I should have been over it a long time ago because, like, I'm doing stuff. That most people would dream of, like writing books, writing for the Washington Post and USA Today and photos and some like incredible publications. I have great bylines. When I met my now wife, I half jokingly, it's a funny sentence. I say it as a joke, but I'm like, I'm huh. a good, I'm a good Google. Like, I don't say Google me cause that's pompous, but I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm a decent Google. Um, if you Google my name, there's a lot of stuff out there from like Esquire and good housekeeping and Cosmo and like, and podcast episodes and, and stuff. Um, so I should have been over it a long time ago, but it, I still, and the jealousy stuff, like, which I don't know if they're the same or there's like a thin line between the intense jealousy. When you see somebody doing something that you wish you could be doing um, and the imposter syndrome that you don 't think you 're worthy of doing what they 're doing, but you want it and you like the duopoly of existing in that space can be really ugly um, it 's actually so two things about that: the jealousy is where my dad two journey actually started so before I went to the first dad my first dad too dove men plus care flew doug and zach and God, who else was on that? To MetLife Stadium for some event with Doug Flutie, an old football player? An old well, I remember see, seeing that online, yeah. And I saw that. And at the time, I was an NFL fan and liked Doug Flutie. And I was like, geez, like, to be there, like, that's, like, the pinnacle, man. Like, somebody's flying you somewhere and giving you, like, an experience that nobody else can have. You're on the field of this massive stadium with a an I – I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, but, like, a legend. Um that's when I'm like, I'm gonna go to that too, and I'm gonna like get into that inner circle and like get a piece of that. Like that's what I wanted. I wanted to still have not been on the field at MetLife Stadium. Dumb man plus care. Um, <laughs> you know they they've given me some incredible experiences, um, but uh, that's actually where it started. But I still, I, I for a long time I was so conscious of other people being jealous of stuff I might be doing or other people possibly be doing that I would not do the thing that a lot of travel writers do. Like when they get an invitation somewhere and I still don't do this. Like they post immediately like you guys, like guess where I was just invited. I'm going to be going to this five-star hotel in three months. And then they spend three months like talking about it. Oh yeah. Like I never do that until I show up at the airport and I put something on my story, like off to whatever, like I don't talk about it because i I still feel like I don't want to feed that, I know how bad that feels, um no I mean all bets are off once I'm there because I'm working sure. and I'm doing the thing, but yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna like build it I'm not gonna like build myself up, I don't need to do that and i I know how negative it can make other people feel and i I'm so self conscious about doing that to other guys specifically um so anyway, jealousy imposter syndrome it's terrible and if I can, if, if, if anything I've said can help you or if, if you need help, I mean, I'm available at OWTK on Twitter, DM me. If I can help you, I'm always there for any guy that wants or any person that wants to talk through something, um, or needs a pep talk. Like I've needed them and had Doug and others to give them to me. So I, I'm, I'm, I will pay it forward
0: and I, I awesome. do and,
1: and I will and I have. <laughs>
0: Well, I count myself blessed to be able to be part of a group um, of people through Dad2 that really help promote uh, emotional availability and the openness between guys to be able to express struggle or needing help where a lot of other groups don't have that. Or they kind of like push those sorts of requests off to the side. And I found a lot of support within the Dad2 community or people – you know church rarely if that's a yeah. word um yeah. to to do that um there's a funny small story i want to share with you yeah. that that i haven't told anyone other than my wife um when i uh, my first tattoo was the one in new orleans and i remember the very first time i saw you in person oh god Um, it's not, it's not bad. It's kind of funny. This is an example of like
1: how, it's not um, like a men's, it's not a men's room store. No, 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 no. I I was,
0: I, you were, I don't know. I don't remember who you were chatting with, but you were chatting with someone in just like the big main area. And number one, I was a little star Trek because I mean, I hadn't really started my dad blog yet. I had, I was like three months in my kid was like a newborn. I was like, you know, he writes online and all this stuff. Right. Um, but I was immediately embarrassed because I realized that you and I were wearing the
1: same shirt. We were. Yes. <laughs> in much different sizes, in but the shirt. Same <laughs> shirt.
0: But I mean, it was it was a, a like a like a blue and yellow like pattern thing, and I got it at Target, and I was like, oh, I'm wearing the same shirt, like, and in, in the same room. I was super embarrassed, and that was like where the definitely <laughs> I I have become a much more mature person, and yeah. like now. Now I would have, if that happened now, I'd go up and be like, "Hey, nice shirt," you know, make the yeah, typical that's shirt. funny. But at that point, like, I immediately left the room to change my shirt and then come back down and attend. Oh my uh, God,
1: are you serious?
0: I am. I thought I thought I I'd have to share that since we're actually talking because it's oh, it's that's really funny, fairly ridiculous. I
1: remember. I remember that shirt. It was like a long a long sleeve dress yeah, shirt. Yeah, long sleeve shirt. Yeah, I, I, I used to love that chair. I think my, my youngest daughter who loves super, she's skinny as a rail. She loves super baggy things. So all my old 3X dress shirts, she wears, she loves like plaid and flannel and super baggy things. Nice. Uh, yeah, I think she's still, I think that is still in the house somewhere. Um, that's but that's really Yeah, it would have been so funny if you came up and like, looks like I'm not the only one who shops at Target.
0: Right, exactly. I, but you know, I wasn't in that place in my life. Yeah. Then, no, so. me
1: neither. I probably, <laughs> if I saw you first, I probably also would have written changed. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny you talk, thanks for sharing that. That's really funny. Um, it's funny you talk about being guys. I'm not selling my book, I swear, but I'm one of the things I'm most proud of with the first book I wrote. It's a guided journal for dads that came out again in September. Um, is how my approach to it. So like a lot of the guided journals. So it's basically like there's a lot of them on the market. Um, like guys, you, you answer questions and the idea is that you kind of like sketch out an arc of your life story. Not the, it's not groundbreaking, but none of them that I saw in doing kind of research ask guys to get vulnerable. Like it was a, it wasn't stereotypical. Well, a lot of them were stereotypical, but um, like macho stuff. But sure. I'm like, I'm 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 a modern guy, and I'm vulnerable as to a fault. Um, and I want to ask guys questions that like will challenge them and make them cry and think and maybe make them feel regret or some sense of loss or failure or whatever. Because that's that's where good stories come from. Like. Um, Frederick Douglass, my favorite quote, like without struggle, there can be no progress and struggles, part of your story. And it's how we got to where we are today. So I'm really proud of it because it's asking guys to dig deep and to think about the things that they regret and the, the, the things that no other guided journal that I've seen and which I think is going to help make for better stories and better stories is what the world needs and what I hope men will leave behind for for their kids and their grandkids um, because I lost my dad last summer. And even as a storyteller, my, the I, I don't regret much in life, but I, I will regret for the rest of my life, not sitting down and doing my storyteller thing of asking him questions and uh, about like every dad's got like their eight stories that they like trot out, that they've like workshopped over the years and they can like hit all, they hit the points, they hit the notes. Sure. Uh, the punchline at the same spot. Um, and my dad was no different. And i that's all I really knew of him. Um, and I never asked for more color. I never interviewed him. I, and when he died, I was like, oh, shit. I mean, I was all shit for a lot of reasons. But I'm like, I'll never know anything more about him. Like, that's it. His stories went with him. Um, and I don't want, I didn't want other guys to feel that way about their own fathers or about themselves. Like, I don't want anyone to live with the regret that I have. So um I'm glad you're, you have a space in the present tense and people that you're able to share with and be vulnerable. Cause that is, I mean, mental health, the, is the, the, I mean, there are, there are diseases and coronavirus, but like mental health is the defining thing of our generation of, of our lifetime. Um, and it's important for guys. It's November. I don't know when this is going on, but as we're recording it, we're heading into November, uh, and mental health is so crucial, and one of the things that can really help people is to have people that you can talk openly with, especially guys. Like, you don't have to just be like, I'm fine, I'm good, everything's great, Uh powering through. <laughs> like, that's right. such crap. It's so dangerous and toxic to do that to ourselves and each other. Um so, little plug for the book because not that I even said the name of it because I'm a ter- I'm terrible at plugging anything I do. No,
0: uh, I I was actually planning on that was going to be my next question about right. about your book because I uh, uh and I'm sorry for your loss with your father. I lost my dad earlier this year. Yeah. I'm um. Sure. Well, and the that uh, I purchased the book. Um. I plan on working through it. Now, at least for my kids, because, I mean, I plan on being around for a very long time, but in case something terrible happens, yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have that to hand off. Um and, and I feel some of the same that some of the same way that you did as far as not being able to ask my dad uh, extra questions. I am yeah. thankful that I was able to do one of these kind of recordings with my dad before he passed. Oh, wow! Um He lived with us for a year and a half um and one evening we sat down for like an hour and a half and we were able oh, to share stories. So that was, that was wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, um, enjoy the book so far with what I've been working with and, and plan to make sure that's on the, on the blog as well.
1: Oh, thank you. I I appreciate that. I mean, I don't, um, the, the contract with the publisher, like full disclosure, like I'm not getting royalties. I got like flat amounts. So I'm happy when people buy it and my goal now is I'm not making more money off of it. I want people again, it's a very altruistic thing at this point. I want people to have their story. i care about storytelling. I care about stories and I want people to tell their stories. And I I think I wrote it in such a way because it's interspersed with a little bit of my story. It starts with my, my story about my dad. Um, I get personal and, and it ends with the acknowledgement about that too. um, and questions like like talking about, and um this is one of the and I wish I had the book here with me because I don't remember how I worded the exact question, but it's um something like talk about your first um, friend of an, a different gender, like and how did you make that work? And that question's so important to me because we live in a world where some political people, on a certain side of the ledger or like, I can't be in the same room with somebody of the other gender. If my wife's not there. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> that is so horrible. It's like, what's? are you a monster? Like what's going to happen? If that happens, right. Like, you can't control yourself. So I want, I want guys to think two things. I, my goal with that question is like, I want, if they have, cause I have friends of the opposite gender and it's a beautiful thing to have. Um, now gender is a construct and that's a whole thing. And so I don't remember how I worded it, but this whole book is worded so inclusively. I spent so much time with pronouns and with inclusion. And I'll, I'll give you one more inclusion story that I love so much from my publisher. Why I love working with this publisher so much. But anyway, for the sake of argument, let's say opposite gender for right now. Um, I have, I have female friends and I wanted guys to think about one, if they have a female friend or multiple to write about what that's like and how good that is and why it works. And more importantly, if they've never had a female friend, I want that question to stop them dead in their tracks and be like, Oh my God. Like, why have I never had a female friend? Like that's messed up, right? Like, and so that's what I'm getting at with this. Like, I want people to like feel some things that they don't feel on a day to day basis and help that, put their life story down for their children. One real quick about inclusion. One of my favorite questions in the book. I'm not going to say that about every question, but one of my favorite problems, (laughs) because I'm a music nerd, was describe, because a lot of journals say like, you know, what's your favorite band or whatever. And it's like a one word, it's a dead question. They write the band and that's it. My question in that vein was, describe the moment the first moment you experienced the music of the band that would go on to be your favorite, like, where were you? What did it feel like? What? Because I have an answer to that story myself. And it's like it's a story. It's not just, uh, I, I I heard him on the radio once. Like, it's where it's a play again, full sensory where I was, what I was feeling about myself and about my life or whatever. The publisher in the final edit was like, hey, wait a minute. Some dads are deaf and they've never had that experience potentially. So is there a way we can make this more inclusive? And one, I felt like an asshole for not thinking about that. I was so I'm like music, music, music. But I was like, I love you guys. Like, thank you for calling me on that at the mm-hmm. last minute. Um, And I changed it to be like, describe the moment you experience the art of the artist. So whether that's sculpture, and I, I think parenthetically say like painter, sculpture, author, filmmaker, whatever. So however you consume, you, everybody has some sort of famous artist, whatever the medium is, talk your child through the moment they first came into your life. Um, and so this publisher is incredible to their attention to detail as like a modern, caring publishing house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's an honor to like work with them on this one, the next one. And again, a, a few more, uh, that are coming down the pike.
0: I would love to hear that story if you're willing to, to share that story. What about the band?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so I've had multiple favorite bands. So the favorite artist I have now, I have a tattoo of her on my arm. Okay. Uh, my wife and I have matching tattoos. That is her. That, she's an Australian woman named Gordy. Well, her name's Sophie Payton, but she goes by the artist named Gordy. And that is actually her handwriting. I reached out to her on Twitter oh, and wow. a- asked her to write that for me. And my wife and I got matching ta- – my my now wife. Um, and it's on her right arm so that when we hold hands, like, the tattoos are up against each other. Nice. Anyway, that's my favorite artist of the past five years or whatever. But my first ever favorite band it's called the Afghan Wigs. Um First non-Seattle band to be signed to Sub Pop Records, uh, which is your completely useless stat, uh, factoid to be thrown in there. Um, Since <laughs> they're from Cincinnati, they were, they're still around now, they got back together, but um, I don't, I actually don't have anything to do with them anymore. And that's a whole different conversation about how I deal with stuff from a modern guy. If I don't think you're a good man or a good person, I can't really listen to you or watch your films or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so if I knew what I think I knew or know about that band, then my life might've taken a different trajectory. But back in the mid late nineties, the internet wasn't around. We couldn't know everything about everyone. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I was working at Clover, which was like a precursor to target, I guess one of those kind of catch all retail shops that were okay. all over America and this was back in the day. MTV was definitely a thing because it was 1993. Yeah, I was 17. And their major label debut, this is funny because I'm like an indie rock kid, but the, the album that changed my life was my favorite band's major label debut, which is ironic and funny, sure. uh, which is where I discovered them. There was a prog- there was a television channel called The Box. Do you remember this? It was like a pay-per-view video channel where you could call. It was national, I think. You called and you requested a song for 90 90- a video for 99 cents. It was like a video jukebox and like yeah. then the mm-hmm. world would see it. I never paid to do that. Um but this day that I called out, I called out of work. I faked sick as I was wont to do back then, yeah. and stayed at home while my parents went to work. And happened to flick on the box at the exact moment the video for Debonair, their lead single off *Gentleman*, their debut album. I mean, their major label debut came out, uh, and I had never heard any music like that. In my life, I was listening to like, the hell was I listening like Bon Jovi or whatever back then. I don't know, Um, and I'm like, it's like new soul, like it's like dirty like Cincinnati white boy soul music, and it was sexually not explicit, but like provocative in a way that I had as a 17 year old. Absolute, I'll just be honest with everyone. Absolutely no frame of reference for. <laughs> Um, I asked my oldest brother or I asked for it for their album for Christmas, um, their CD back then. And, uh, my oldest brother thankfully bought it for me and changed my life. And so I was a fat, lonely, untouched and unloved 17 year old boy, um, who discovered a very sexual soul kind of music because he called out of work of his boring retail job and that set my life on a trajectory of in weirdly, of independent music. Because they were still they signed to it was Electra, which I don't think exists anymore. Um but I went back to their back catalog, their their two sub pop records, and discovered other sub pop bands, which in the mid nineties was a plethora of some of the greatest music and most influential music of our generation. Um and then like bands out of Chicago touch and go records and started listening to college radio and started a record label and just my life shortly thereafter. So like if I didn't call out of work, I'm a like butterfly effect guy. I'm, I'm yeah. a big, I like to think back on these tiny decisions. Um My, my story of how I met my now wife is another story of like a super a split second. Like if I didn't turn that on, if, if I turned that on three and a half minutes later, I would have never discovered who the hell knows. I would have, Mm -hmm. who knows who I would be like, no joke. That song changed the course. It was one of those like little ticks in your life that just kind of set you off, not completely different. And for those not watching at home, I'm now moving my hand slightly on a dial. Like your life is not a straight line anymore. You're just kind of going off course slightly. Um, And there's been lots of those moments and I love thinking back to them. So I developed that question because I wanted guys to think about not just who their band was, but like that moment. Where were you? What was it like? Who were you back then? Um, and how did that really change you? How did that artist? Because I'm a believer in punk rock and in music changing. As a 45 year old man, it still moves me. It still changes me, as a, in in a positive way. Um, it's not just cathartic; like it changes my point of view on things. One of my favorite bands today are these three um, punk rock young women from Australia. I'm kind of infatuated with Australian women artists right now. Um, they're called Camp Cope. And they kind of riot girly, I guess, like modern, not like Slitter Kinney and and, and that stuff, but like they definitely sing about w- the trials and tribulations about what it's like to be a young woman in this world. And like, I feel as jacked up as I used to listening to like Fugazi and minor threat back when I was young, um, from like these like 20 year old women, like singing about powerful stuff that doesn't technically impact me on the user end, but makes me think about my, how complicit I've been and, and am or can be or shouldn't be in what they're going through. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm super happy. I'm happy about that question, but I'm happy that they tweaked it, have made me think through it more, um, for people, uh, who can't hear, um, and how that question would have been one of a hundred that they, they would have been left out of that book.
0: Uh, so. Thank you very much. This has been, this has been a lot of fun. I think this is the first time we've, we've hung out at any length, um, to be able to talk. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that.
1: And we're not even wearing the same shirt
0: this time. So. I know, right? How about that? <laughs> I if I if I could have found that shirt in my closet someplace, I would have worn it. Just <laughs> that would have been awesome. <laughs> part of the reaction, but yeah. You know. So thank you very much. I look forward to hanging out again in person when all this stuff is over and two oh, no, starts it. again or. uh if you're ever in Chicago, or next time I'm in New York, we'll see if we. Can well, get
1: I'm I'm going to be in Chicago at some point. Now it won't be in the winter.
0: <laughs> I don't blame you.
1: In the right mind, should go to Chicago in the winter. <laughs> but um, the Field Museum, which I've been to, but my my wife is a massive dinosaur nerd, and yeah. um, I know there's some wicked uh, dino stuff at the Field Museum. So, and she's never been. To, she, she's been to like Egypt and Tokyo, and she's never been to Chicago. Oh, so wow. I want to take her. So maybe spring. But hopefully, fingers crossed, there'll be a dad too before spring <laughs> uh, right. that we will see each other. But this has been so much fun, Joel. Thank you for having me on the show and, and talking to me about all this stuff and a meeting and this wild ride that we're both on uh, in this weird world that didn't exist 15 years ago that, yeah. that we're a part of. So. No it's been thank- great. Thank you again.